If you tell people that they can only bring solutions, you will never hear about the biggest problems that might be too complex or maybe feel too risky for any one person to speak up about, let alone solve. That was organizational psychologist Adam Grant talking about how important it is for business leaders to create a culture of psychological safety rather than one of fear for their employees to thrive. Welcome to another episode of Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Ever wonder how you can best motivate your employees, what the long-term outlook for remote work looks like, or how to retain top talent in an ethical way? Those are questions best-selling author and Wharton professor Adam Grant spends a lot of time thinking about. On today's episode, he shares his ideas on those topics with Salesforce's Sarah Franklin. But before we jump into Professor Grant, a quick word about Work.com. Work.com is an all-new suite of apps and resources that leaders around the world can use to reopen, reskill employees, and respond efficiently to the COVID-19 pandemic. Reopening will be a journey, but Work.com is your guide. To learn more, go to Work.com. And now, Salesforce's Sarah Franklin and Professor Adam Grant. He's Wharton's top-rated professor, organizational psychologist who, in his own words, wants to you know, make work not suck. I love that. And he's been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers in Fortune's 40 Under 40, Oprah's Super Soul 100, many, many accolades. It's so impressive. New York Times bestselling author, multiple books. Please, without further ado, everybody, please give a warm virtual welcome to Adam Grant. Thanks, Sarah. Adam, you've done just such a, you know, so much significant research on job satisfaction. Why do you think it's so important for organizations to focus on change management and the people in this time? Well, I think think if we've learned anything during the pandemic, it's that we all need to improve the acuity of our peripheral vision, right? It's so easy to get tunnel vision and focus on our mission and our strategy and assume that the world is is just going to adapt to us. The reality is that we've all had to adapt to the world in dramatic ways over the past six months. And so I think organizations that don't really pay much attention to people uh, often end up seeing their people stick to the status quo as opposed to embracing change or even initiating change. And I think that for me, a lot of change management efforts uh, are really efforts to find out about the changes that employees already know are important um, and give them a chance to really get their ideas on the table. You're not just an author you know, books, but you also recently wrote an incredible article in The Economist that was on how you know, jobs and bosses and firms can improve, whether it's, you mentioned earlier, job satisfaction, uh, leadership, and trust. What can you share with everybody today and your thoughts on those areas and how important it is and what leaders should be doing to retain the top talent, to, to make people happy, to do this in an ethical way? You know, I'm a mother of two and I'm very sensitive to what this means to, you know, my kids are not in school, they're at home. What this means to, you know, people that have different home responsibilities, the time, all this stuff. What do you think about all of this? And what can you share with our leaders that are joining us today that are wondering the same things? Well, I think that depends on how many days we have to cover all that ground. But Sarah, I, <laughs> I feel like in the past week, I've gotten to retake part of first grade and fourth grade and seventh grade with our kids, which has been an interesting experience. So, you know, I think we're all dealing with a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability. And when the, the economists came to me at the beginning of the summer and they said, look, can you, can you tell us what the future of, you know, of the human side of the workplace is going to look like? Uh, the first thought I had was, you know, this is a dangerous exercise to try to predict the future. And, you know, there's an old saying that historians can't even predict the past, 
with much accuracy. So I think we should all have a, a lot of humility when it comes to trying to figure out what the world is going to look like in a year and two years, let alone five or 10. But what I then thought would make sense was to say, look, you know, although none of us have ever lived through a pandemic before, we have lived through other kinds of crises and economic recessions. And so maybe there's something we can learn from the data there about what we can expect in the future. And I think there's both good news and bad news. Um, a lot of this research comes from Emily Bianchi, uh, who's the world's leading expert in studying how the conditions of the economy affect your, your own individual motivation and experience of leadership at work. And what Emily's shown is, first of all, if you graduate from college during recession, even 20 and 30 years later, you are significantly happier with your job. And that's regardless of what industry you enter, what kind of work you're doing, even controlling for how well paid you are. There's something about starting your career when it's difficult to find a job that cultivates a lasting sense of gratitude that, that I have a job, right? And people feel fortunate about that. And I think that's encouraging. It means that, you know, that maybe people are not going to be looking, you know, over their left shoulder every four minutes to try to figure out if there's a better opportunity out there. But I also worry that that maybe opens the door for leaders and managers to exploit employees a little bit more. Right? The more grateful people are to have work, the more, you know, more oppressive conditions they're willing to put up with. And that, I think if you stop there, I'm nervous about that. But then there's another good piece of news from Emily's work, which is people who graduate during a recession, once they become CEOs a couple decades later, they actually pay their employees more generously because in part, they're less entitled and they remember what it was like to be struggling earlier in their careers. And so I think that for a lot of people, this COVID pandemic is going to be it's going to be an imprinting moment, right? It's going to, I hope, create a sense of noblesse oblige uh, where leaders are going to say, okay, I have a responsibility to take care of people who are at the very bottom of my hierarchy. And I think that on the talent side, there's going to be an expectation that that's going to happen, right? I think that employees have seen how many organizations were just immediately willing uh, to, to do layoffs as opposed to exploring alternatives like, uh, like furloughs or pay cuts uh, or even going to a four-day work week temporarily. And in the long run, the companies that treat their people the best are going to have the easiest time attracting and retaining and motivating their talent. What do you think? I agree. I think that at Salesforce, I was very inspired by you know, Mark Benioff, our CEO and co-founder, where he did the 90-day no layoff you know, pledge and, and challenge to CEOs. He's like, you know, don't have a knee-jerk reaction here. You know, what, what can we do as a company to help our community handle these crises? It's very hard to see millions of people out of work, furloughed or not. And it's heartbreaking. It's uncertain. Here is also thinking like, what can I do to invest in people? Remember what it was like when I was just starting out. It's good to, to remember your roots, right? Yeah. Uh, where, you, where you come from. You know, one thing that, you know, I would just, I guess, add to that at some level is there's evidence from Mark's philosophy here. Uh, there's, there's an actual paper published in the most, one of the most rigorous journals in the management field called Dumb and Dumber, which analyzes the effects of, of companies choosing Not to do layoffs versus, <laughs> versus delaying. Yeah, Dumb and Dumber. Uh, and it turns out that if companies are able to either delay layoffs or avoid layoffs, on average, they actually perform better than the ones that don't. Um, and you can see that tracking their profitability and their stock price. And we've known this for decades, uh, that if you can find an alternative, you should, not only because of the social justice and responsibility component of this, but also because when companies do layoffs, oftentimes they have to replace a sizable proportion of the number of people they let go, not quite realizing how indispensable they were. Um, and also, the people who are left experience tremendous amounts of survivor guilt, which lead them to say, well, maybe it should have been me, or anxiety, maybe I'm going to be next. And so they end up getting focused very narrowly on keeping their jobs, as opposed to thinking broadly about innovating and adapting and changing. 
And then also your most talented people, the moment you do a downsizing, are the ones who are quickest to jump ship. Because they're basically saying, look, this isn't a place where I can build a secure future. So let me go work somewhere else. These are all characteristics that you're describing of leaders that care, right? That care about their employees, that want to develop culture, that you know have purpose and motivation and not just taking care of their shareholders, but also every stakeholder. And stakeholder capitalism has been something that you know, Mark and has advocated for, that it's not just shareholders, but it's it's every stakeholder, including your employees, including your customers, including the planet, including all of these you know, things. And so how do you think leaders maintain that and infuse that sense of resiliency into the culture? What advice do you have for everybody with that? So I think the first step for any leader to take if you want to build a resilient organization is to build psychological safety. Uh, my favorite definition of psychological safety is Amy Edmondson's, where she says, look, psychological safety is the feeling that you can take a risk without being punished. And that risk might be speaking up about a concern. It might be raising a suggestion. It could be being a little vulnerable and asking for help. And I think a lot of leaders understand the importance of psychological safety in principle, but they fail to create it in practice. And Sarah, one of the ways I see this over and over again is I'll walk into a new company and, you know, as an organizational psychologist, I'm often the person who gets hired after three or four consultants have been fired. And so I'm just curious, okay, what's actually going on here? And I'll hear leaders say, don't bring me blank, bring me blank. And Sarah, if I could ask you to think about a boss that you've had at some point in your career who liked to say, don't bring me blank, bring me blank. How would you fill in the blanks? Don't bring me... Problems. Bring me... Solutions. Yeah. I don't know why every leader on the planet feels like they need to say the same robot sentence, but I get, I get why leaders say it. You want people to be constructive. You don't want them to whine and complain. Was that a test that you gave me? Because I didn't you know you passed. were You totally passed. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I really think... I do appreciate the sentiment behind it, but the effect can be really chilling from a psychological safety perspective because if you tell people that they can only bring solutions, you will never hear about the biggest problems that might be too complex or maybe feel too risky for any one person to speak up about, let alone solve. And so the first thing I would recommend to every leader that I work with is create a culture where people can voice problems, even if they have no clue how to fix them. And that is the beginning of of how we change, how we innovate, how we create new strategies. And one of my favorite examples of this is at Warby Parker, the eyeglass retailer, where of their five biggest innovations in the past decade or so, four of them have come out of what looks like a suggestion box, but it's actually a problem box. It's an online document in the cloud where anytime you see a problem, let's say it's a technical problem, you can submit it. And then they have leaders vote on which problems matter. So then if I'm a junior employee, I can look around, see which problems are strategic. And then if I see one I want to solve, I can make it part of my job to do that. I get resources and a team around me to work on it. And what I I love about that most is the people who are the canaries in the coal mine, who are best at detecting threats, are not always ones with the skills or the resources to solve them. And so if we can decouple those two things and create the psychological safety to raise problems, it's a lot more likely then that people will jump in and and try to fix them. Those are some interesting questions on leadership and folks on culture. I want to shift a little bit to how we adapt to this long-term reality of a remote workplace. We're talking about next summer, right? This is here for the long haul. And it gets scary a little bit thinking like, are we all going to have plexiglass and you know masks all the time? But I guess that's the, the reality. You know, what's this new normal workplace going to look like? <laughs> I wish I knew. I mean, the first thing we can say is if COVID doesn't kill the open office, it should, right? Even before the pandemic, 
I was struck by the evidence that open plan offices, aside from leading people to have to take more sick days, also just killed the ability to concentrate and focus and find flow and, and really get absorbed in deep work. And ironically, in some of the open office experiments that have been done, when people's walls and doors are taken away, they actually talk face-to-face less. And they end up emailing more in part because they're, they're just constantly getting overloaded. Uh, so I think that the first thing we can expect is much more in the way of, of clear physical boundaries that not only keep people healthy, but also allow them to do their work uh, and collaborate when they want to. I think the probably the second thing we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of organizations overcorrect. I'll tell you, Sarah, in 2018, I went to a bunch of the top CEOs in Silicon Valley, and I asked if they might want to try a remote work Friday experiment, and none of them were willing to take the risk. They said, it's opening Pandora's box. If I let people go, they'll never come back. We won't have spontaneous water cooler conversations. This is a terrible idea. And now at least three of those CEOs have announced that they might be a permanent remote workforce company-wide. And you know, before I was disappointed they weren't willing to try partially remote, and now I'm disappointed that they think they should be fully remote. I think the evidence is still really early, but we see very mixed effects of people not coming into the office. I think it's easier to pull off if your job is a little bit like a baseball game where every batter can go to the plate independently. It's a little harder if you're playing football or soccer or basketball and you actually have to pass materials and ideas and products and services back and forth to people. And um, my read of the evidence to date is that people are most likely to be not only productive, but also enjoy their work if they're able to be in the office about half the week because they miss the structure, they miss the community, uh, they miss the spontaneous interaction. And I don't think we know yet how to substitute for those things. And so my hope is that leaders are going to say, look, you know, just as we were too rigid before in insisting everyone was in the workplace all the time, we shouldn't be so rigid about saying no one ever comes into the office either. And we need to be running a lot more experiments to figure out what's going to work for us. I love that idea of the experiments and, you know, seeing that adaptation and learning. I'm curious, Adam, what you think. I, I don't know if you feel you're working more. A lot of people have said, I'm working more. I'm always at the screen. How do you avoid that that burnout feeling when you feel like you're just kind of always here in front of the computer doing something? So I think this depends in part on whether you tend to be more a segmenter or an integrator. So this is my colleague, Nancy Rothbard's research. Uh, she shows on this spectrum, on one extreme, we have integrators who love the idea of blurring the boundaries between different domains of life. So you might have had pictures of your kids at your office. You're thrilled to invite your coworkers over for dinner, maybe even on vacation. And everything I just said, if you're a segmenter, freaks you out. You have like a very strict border between work and the rest of your life. You don't want to bring your family to work. You don't want to bring your work home. And there's some research that just came out in the past couple of weeks showing that segmenters are struggling from a well-being perspective much more than integrators are. Um, that segmenters, a lot of them feel like, well, you know, I'm, I'm basically having to work at home. Or worse yet, I'm living at work now and I can never escape. And empirically, there's, uh, there's a new study that Ethan Bernstein and Haley Blunden just released showing that on average, many of us are working two to three hour longer days. Uh, so Sarah, exactly what you were describing really seems to hold up across a lot of different industries. We're not commuting. We know we can start earlier. We can sort of creep back into our home offices a little bit later. And so I think especially for segmenters, we need to set boundaries. If you can, it seems to help to have a separate space for work. And then when you leave your home office, you don't go back in there until the next morning. And you might even change your clothes, right? Going in and going out. So you feel like you have a work self and a home self. I think it also seems to make a difference uh, to set clear time boundaries. And ideally, you coordinate these in a team. So this is Leslie Perlow's research. What Leslie shows is if you say, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to unplug on nights and weekends, it's too easy for your team to drag you back in. 
What you actually need is a team commitment to say, look, nobody is expected to respond to emails, let's say after 5 p.m. on nights or at all on Saturdays and Sundays. And if the team will commit to that together, they're much more likely to hold each other accountable. Now, of course, we all recognize emergencies can arise. And so what you're supposed to do then is pick up the phone if you desperately need to reach someone. But I think trying to to coordinate with the people that you work most interdependently with and agreeing when you're not going to work, that can actually free up a lot of time and energy to focus and concentrate and also to not work. That's a great advice, Adam. And I will say last time we spoke, I I took that advice from you and I I went to my team and... Well, no, it was great. Uh, I can be some data for you in your studies where... You know, we coordinated time off on a Friday and we called it reflection days where, you know, you just weren't meeting and, you know, we, we coordinated it so that you weren't stressed and people that you stress like, oh, I'm missing something. I know there's something very important I needed for. And the reactions were very positive to that, that coordinated time. I'm super guilty of doing the, I have flexible work hours. I've talked about it on Twitter. Like I wake up at four and like I'll email in the early morning, but you're not expected to respond. But the weekend, this was the other thing I tried was to not email on the weekends and provide that psychological safety to the team that they could, you know, not email on weekends, which is seems like obvious, right? But this was advice that you gave to myself and a group of leaders. And, and I implemented that advice and I'm so grateful for it. And I think my team is also grateful for it. So I hope everybody here can think like, what experiment can you run? Right? It was very easy. Next day, did that experiment and got some good results from it. So thank you for that. I'm so glad to hear that it didn't ruin your life entirely. I was wondering, Sarah, <laughs> why I haven't been hearing from you on Sundays as much, but now I know. <laughs> Now, you know, I'm, I'm doing things and I'm better too. I do wonder, like, this was a new idea. You have to be open to listening to new ideas and you have to be willing to have the courage to champion new ideas. And you have a, a book, one of the many originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. And this is all about how to champion new ideas and fight like the group think, which is, it's hard when you feel like, you know, 10 people in the room are all saying the same thing. And you're like, but uh, I have an idea, right? What is uh, some research that can help leaders drive this innovation across teams in this new work environment where I imagine groupthink is even harder because it's even more intimidating on the virtual world? Yeah, I think the first thing to do differently is to change the way you structure your brainstorming. So Sarah, I know you're familiar with the evidence already, but I'm always surprised by how few organizations are actually adopting it. So we have over four decades of research on brainstorming. And the punchline of it is, that if you're going to put five people in a room, in a, let's say in a Zoom together to brainstorm, if instead you would put them in separate rooms to work independently alone, you'll get more ideas and you also get better ideas. And we know there are a few reasons for that. Uh, one is in groups, there's a production blocking problem. We can't all talk at once. And so some people don't get heard. And that's more of a problem the bigger the group is. Secondly is ego threat. I don't want to look stupid. So I bite my tongue on my most original ideas. And then the group misses out on some real creativity. And then there's just the the simple conformity challenge that in a room, an idea starts to get popular. And especially if there's a hippo, a highest paid person's opinion, then everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon. And then we get way too much convergent thinking, not enough divergent thinking. So my favorite solution to that is called brainwriting. All you do is you let people generate ideas individually. And then you bring all the ideas together. You might submit them in the chat window if you're virtual. And then you let the group does what the group does best, which is to evaluate and refine. 
And there's some recent evidence on this that suggests that individuals have more brilliant ideas than groups do. They also have more dumb ideas than groups do. And so what you want is basically to maximize variation by letting individuals come up with the ideas, but then bring in the wisdom of crowds to figure out which ones are worth pursuing. But I mean, neither of us would ever have bad ideas, right? Like we as individuals always have great ideas, right? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I will say, actually, I have a former student, Justin Berg, who studied this. He went to Cirque du Soleil and he got all these circus artists to submit videos of brand new performances that had never been seen uh-huh. yet. And he wanted to know, could you predict which, which act was going to be a hit with audiences? And so he released them on YouTube. He let people watch them, vote on them, and even donate their own money to support the performer if, if they liked them. And then he had different groups try to predict which of the videos were, were going to be the favorites. And the first finding was people could not judge their own ideas at all. Right? <laughs> so on average, if, if you're a circus performer, you ranked your own video two slots higher in a set of 10 than, um, than the YouTube audience. Of course. It's of course, great, like, right? my idea. how could it not be genius? <laughs> and there, uh, there's some new evidence actually showing that the more senior you are in your career, the more likely you are to overestimate the value of your ideas. Whereas more junior people may underestimate them slightly, which could be a, a confidence effect. But then Justin thought, okay, well, let's go to leaders and managers then because they're the gatekeepers, right? They're the people who decide which ideas live and which ones die. And it turned out they were almost as bad as the artists themselves. But for the opposite reason, right? The creators were too positive on their ideas the leaders and managers were too negative. And they were too negative, I think, in part because they would use prototypes. Uh, When they were judging ideas, they'd look at what had worked in the past, and then they'd try to match them, which is a great way to make decisions. But when you're trying to bet on creativity, what's worked in the past is irrelevant to what's going to work in the future. It might actually be negatively correlated with it. And so the thought is, okay, you can't trust yourself. can't trust your boss either. Who do you go to? And Justin found that the best judges of original ideas were actually your peers, your fellow creators that just like the leaders and managers, they had some distance. And so they could say things like, you know, Sarah, and that actor you dress up like a clown? Don't do that because no one likes clowns, which was actually a finding in the data. Clowns were universally hated. But unlike the leaders and managers, the peers were invested in seeing new ideas take off. And instead of looking for reasons to say no, they looked for reasons to say yes. So I think we should actually take senior leaders out of the gatekeeper role a little bit and do much more peer voting on which ideas are worth investing in and betting on. I love that. I love the brainwriting idea. Also, it's funny you talked about people changing, you know, clothes and, and everything. I think it's important to just invest in yourself and how you feel. My daughter today broke open her piggy bank. She was like, Mama, do you need some money to buy some new pants? Because you wear the same pants all the time. <laughs> so oh no, thank you. I'm okay, but I will get different pants. Uh, so now we want to get some incredible Q&A from the audience. And so I do see, I apologize, I'm looking down here at the data, but I see from Emilio Reyes-LeBlanc that employees tend to use on average 8 to 11 different tools in their every workday. And Adam, what do, you, what do you think about this, about having multiple tools, if that's confusing or hard for people's job satisfaction? I do think it's a challenge. I mean, sometimes you spend half your day just trying to figure out how to get all your technology platforms to work together. And so... One of the things I've been curious about is, is there an optimal number of tools? And I can't think of a good study that directly addresses that, but I think there's a there's an analog. Um, Michael Hausman actually gathered some data. If I remember correctly, this is about 50,000 people across roughly a dozen industries. And he found that on average, people who had between two and four social media profiles were more productive than people who had fewer or more. You can start to think about what's going on. Well, if, if you have seven social media profiles, 
chances are you're too busy either posting or scrolling to actually do your job. And if you have fewer, you're just not engaged in the world in the 21st century. And so I wonder if there's an analog that could be applied to some of the productivity and communication tools that we use. That's very interesting. So Adam, another question. So this is from David Radin. He loves your book, uh, Give and Take. And where you outline the difference of givers, matchers, and takers. And he was curious, how does a leader create the giver culture throughout his or her organization? Well, David, thank you, first of all. Uh, I'd say it's important to create a giver culture. It's even more important to screen out or eliminate a taking culture. And so I would think about a few ways of doing that. The first is you try not to hire takers. And there's a whole series of tools that I'm I'm happy to share offline if, if anybody's curious on how do you tell if somebody's extremely selfish before you let them in the door. I think the second thing you do then is you take a close look at your performance evaluation system. And the sad reality we see in too many organizations is they say, look, we want people to be collaborative and generous, but then they only measure and reward individual achievements. And so it's a real disincentive to the givers. It undervalues the people who are making other people more successful. And so what I like to see is is performance evaluation and reward and promotion systems that place equal weight on whether you're elevating the people around you or making your team successful as they do on whether you're achieving your own goals. And then the third thing that I think we need if we want to build a culture that's more oriented toward giving than taking is we need a culture of help seeking. And this was counterintuitive to me for a while. I thought, you know, we want people to be offering help, not demanding it. But the data suggests that somewhere between 75 and 90% of all helping an organization starts with a request. So you don't have that many people who are sitting there thinking... I'm kind of bored this month. How could I enrich your life? Right? It's, most acts of helping start with me saying, hey, Sarah, I'm stuck on this and I would really love your support. And so we need to normalize help seeking. We need leaders to model it. I've been working for a couple of years on an online tool to try to facilitate help seeking and help giving. It's called Givitas. And it's a really simple knowledge sharing platform where anyone can make a request and then anyone else can jump in and try to fulfill the request. And I think we need to do more of that because we do see, even in help seeking cultures, People tend to go to their strong ties, the people they trust and know well and feel comfortable with. And those are rarely the best experts or the most connected people. And so the more that we can open up the whole organization for people to get help from those who are most willing and able to support them, the better off we are in in terms of building a giver culture. I love that. And building that giver culture. Great advice, Adam. And a question from Renata Gomaid. I apologize if I mispronounced your name, Renata. But she's curious on advice for introverts. You know, and I'm an introvert. I think, Adam, you've described yourself as an introvert, if I recall correctly, and how to propose new ideas in this virtual setup. And especially when leads are very vocal, or I love the hippo, the highly important person is part of you know, the status quo. What advice do you have for introverts? Sure. Uh, so <laughs> it's funny. I, um, I didn't actually know I was an introvert for a while. And then I got into the psychology field and started doing research on it and, and found that everyone who knew me was convinced I was an introvert with one or two exceptions. And as I read more of the studies, what I realized is number one, you know, being an introvert does not mean that you don't get energy from interacting with other people. That's, I think, one of the most common myths about introversion and extroversion. We are all energized by social interaction. The difference is how much of it we can tolerate, right? And as an introvert, I'm much more easily overstimulated by too much attention or too much interaction than an extrovert might be. And so I think the first thing to do is to make sure you set the kind of boundaries we were talking about earlier. The second thing is don't assume you always have to pitch ideas the same way extroverts do, right? I've seen that very often what introverts like to do is create a structured memo 
or you know, a deep reflection on a topic. And there, there's no reason why going into a meeting, you can't send that out in advance and ask everybody to read it and engage with it. I think the other thing I've enjoyed seeing teams do is to say, look, as Susan Cain pointed out in her book, Quiet, if you look at the data, there is zero correlation between who's the best talker and who has the best ideas. And so what if we decouple those two things? What if, as an introvert, you are not always pitching your own ideas, but you get to hand them over to somebody else in your team to explain them? And that, I think, will, will increase the likelihood that different kinds of pitches are tried for different types of ideas. There's no reason we can't pair people up to do that as well and just say, look, you know, if, if you're an introvert uh, or you're an extrovert, you know you benefit from somebody else's thinking. And so if we let people generate ideas in dyads, maybe we get the best of both worlds there. So I want to take this time to thank all of you for joining us today. Adam, thank you so much for everything that you have shared with us today, but also in your books and your articles. Please continue to help us navigate through this new normal. I need, uh, I need nine, nine sentences here, and they're probably not going to fit together. I think you know from all the research that's been done on, on adapting to change and dealing with the, the increasingly digital-dominated world we're all living in, I think I would just not underestimate the importance of, of real human connection. And I think we, we all are in touch with our strong ties regularly. We're under-communicating with our weak ties, our acquaintances who tend to have more novel information to give us because they're doing different things, they're interacting with different people. And I think we're especially underestimating the value of our dormant ties. The dormant ties you have are the people that you used to know and have lost touch with. And there's just a wealth of evidence uh, showing that when you reconnect with those people, not only do they tend to give you fresh ideas and it's a little bit easier to reach out to them than people you hardly know, it's also a supremely enjoyable experience. And so I think it's just worth noting that not all ties are dormant for a reason. And there are probably people you've lost contact with that would enrich your professional life, but also your personal life too. Well, that is great advice. And I am so inspired. We're on this journey together Adam, you're helping guiding us. And I've learned so much today. You know, everybody, we encourage you to do some experiments, you know, focusing on that job satisfaction and reducing burnout and focus on your employees and your customers together and really just be on this journey together with us. I so much appreciate your time. And now it's the time to say goodbye. Thank you so much. That was best-selling author and organizational psychologist, Adam Grant, who sat down with Salesforce's Sarah Franklin to talk about how we can all work better, stay motivated, and lead more fulfilling lives. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Thanks for joining us today. 